Good morning to everyone present again, and of course, good morning or good afternoon or good evening to everyone watching around the country, and a very special thank you, and we love you, of course, to all of our folks internationally who join us for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. God bless you all. God bless you all. Hope you had a wonderful week, and hope you will have a wonderful week. Um, since we're going through the Gospel of John, how do I say this? I'm always on the watch for something of the Gospel of John now. Since the Gospel of John is here and here, I'm, I'm, right, I'm living my life in the Gospel of John. So every quote, every hint, every time that everyone alludes to or refers to the Gospel of John, of course, I'm all over it. And <clears throat> these things do happen, you know, and they happen by providence, intentionally. Something came in the mail this week from a Christian organization that, that we belong to. And front and center on the prayer guide was a quote from the Gospel of John. So I'll share a quote from the Gospel of John. We're not to this chapter yet. We probably won't get to this chapter for a while. But it's interesting. It's followed by a quote from the sermons of Reformer Martin Luther upon the Gospel of John. The verse is John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Luther's quote is, either sin is with you lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are hopeless, you are lost. But if it is resting on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, you are free, and you will be saved. Now, choose what you want. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful week. Thank you for the rain, what it's going to do for the crops. Thank you for these folks who are gathered here to hear you speak to them by way of your spirit out of your divinely inspired and eternal word. Thank you for everyone watching about the country who's joining us today and will throughout the week. And we pray a very special blessing. Please bestow a very special blessing upon all of our international viewers and, and folks who join us to watch and to listen, especially those who are in countries where they are persecuted for being brothers and sisters in Jesus. And we pray that this wonderful, magnificent gospel, and as boldly evangelistic as it is, please do your work, O living God, by way of the proclamation of your word in this nation and throughout the world. Bring in those who are destined for salvation and fill with power and strength the soul's of your children, your redeemed people who hear these magnificent words. Bless everything that is said and done here this morning, and we thank you and cherish this opportunity. Help us to do our duty wisely and well by the church local and the church universal. And so may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only rock and redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, to honor... The reading of the word of the Lord. Well, I suppose there's a room here. Pardon me. Jesus' public ministry and the calling of his first disciples. Or as I've entitled today's text, Follow the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. Again, the next day, John, that is John the baptizer, 
was standing with two of his, his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which being translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, that is John the baptizer, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which being translated is or means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Kephas, which being translated is Peter, the rock. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you. So in today's text, we still have one more day here on the banks of the Jordan River with John the Baptizer and his ministry. But in these verses, we begin, of course, the transition, uh, transition pardon me, from the public ministry of the Messiah's herald, John the Baptizer, to the public ministry of Jesus, the Word made flesh himself. So now we begin to encounter Jesus in the very opening days of his public ministry after his baptism, after dueling the evil one in the wilderness for 40 days or so, probably returning to the place where he was baptized and then probably traveling back into Galilee. I'm one of the folks who believes that Jesus was baptized in the northern regions of the Jordan River, in the vicinity of Galilee, just probably on the borders of the province. And he's going to start gathering his first disciples, his first apostles, who are men from Galilee. So this location, I think, was close to Galilee, was very convenient for all of these folks to Galilee to come out and, and to see John. And we have some Galileans who are actually disciples of John, John the baptizer, we find in the text. So Jesus begins to gather to himself his disciples, the men who will serve the Messiah in inaugurating his kingdom in this world and establishing his church in this world. Men who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, will pen sacred scripture. Men who Christ, men who God will use to literally change the world by the power of God. They will teach and preach this new covenant, the greatest covenant of all between God and humanity. They will spread, they will nurture, they will grow, they will cultivate his kingdom in this world and, of course, serve as pillars of his church, his early church in the world. So today, Jesus calls or gathers, acquires the first disciples. And as I noted earlier, and you see clearly in the text, some of these men who had up until this time been followers and disciples of John the Baptizer, probably at least for some months. We also have some very important titles in the remainder, in this passage and in the remainder of chapter 1, very important titles ascribed to Jesus in today's text as well as last week's text. With the remainder of chapter 1, the Word made flesh has arrived. The introductions have been given. He's here. He has arrived. He is on His mission. He is beginning the last three and a half years of His mission in His first advent, His first arrival in this world. So the Messiah is here at His work. His mission is underway. Jesus, the Messiah, the Word made flesh 
God's true light, the ultimate revelation of God's truth to humanity. He's now, as we say, stepping out center stage, stepping out upon the world stage in what many call the divine drama, God's redemptive plans for humanity in, in this world, in this creation. We also have further explanation in these texts as to Jesus being the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, his true identity. And so now in this text, chapter 1, what remains, Jesus' new disciples are going to be discovering slowly and surely, even though they're going to be making some really dramatic and grandiose sweeping statements about him, his true identity, pointing to his mission. But they're going to be finding out who and what the Messiah really is, who and what the ancient prophesied Messiah is really to be, and what his mission, what his work in this world truly was, was to be. They're also going to discover what they're in for by becoming his disciples. And one of the last duties of John the Baptist in the waning days of the completion of his ministry will be to direct and point some of his personal followers to Jesus. That has been part and parcel of his mission all along, to point the old covenant people of God to the arrival of their expected Messiah. And John's witness to Jesus will send along some of his very first disciples, men who had been following him from Galilee. So now the Messiah's herald, his duties are coming to an end. His duties are coming to something of a completion. I believe he's probably keenly aware of that. The king's herald has made his way in this world and has left his mark on the world. But now the king himself has now arrived and things are about to move forward and things are about to change forever. As John told us in the prologue, the word has become flesh and he is now dwelling amongst us. Verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So have you noticed this in chapter one? These few days that we've been spending with John the baptizer, John the apostle, he records about three to four successive days in a row that we've been working our way through here in chapter one. This is the third successive day that we're with John on the banks of the Jordan, this Bethany east of the river on the very edges of uh, settlements or civilization. And John is still hard at his mission, preaching the arrival of the Messiah, preaching a good news of repentance, turn from your sin, turn back to God, prepare the way of the Lord into your heart ultimately. He's baptizing. And now he's announcing the actual arrival of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has arrived, and some 40 days, more than 40 days before, John has encountered him personally. He saw a supernatural event at the Messiah's baptism. Remember, Jesus' baptism is 40 days in the past at this time. And on this day, there must be some sort of a lull in the action, perhaps, or a stepping away from the crowds, because he's standing on the riverbank speaking, as the text tells us, with two of his own followers, two of his own disciples. One man who is positively or explicitly identified as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, and another man who curiously is not named specifically. This will happen again in this gospel. But we believe we know who this man is, who this disciple is. More of that shortly. So one of these men is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We believe by internal evidence, that is evidence from the gospels themselves, and external evidence, that is evidence from church history and tradition. We believe that Andrew is Simon Peter's younger brother, responsible to his elder brother, Simon, who very well may be the head of the clan, the head of the family, 
at this time. And Andrew here in John's gospel, interestingly enough, is the very first disciple of Jesus whom we meet. And Andrew's name is actually Greek. Andrew is actually a Greek name, and it means manly. So we take it that our brother Andrew was a manly man, as he was a blue-collar, uh, maybe you could express it this way, a peasant, as we would say, blue-collar, hard-working local fisherman in Galilee. He probably was a pretty rough-and-tough manly guy, probably about the whole gang, the whole family, the whole crowd was. Now, as to this Greek name, uh, don't be surprised at that. The Roman Empire basically conquered Palestine, old Israel, in what, I believe around 60 to 63 B.C. And so the old Israel had been in that area, the Levant, the, the Near East, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, had all been under the control of the Roman Empire by quite some time by this time. And the Jewish people, for better or for worse, were very heavily under the influence of Greco-Roman culture. And to a certain degree, they had to embrace it just simply to get by, to survive. Uh, we believe that all folks of all walks of life uh, probably spoke more Koine Greek, the language in which the New Testament is written, than what we had formerly believed. They probably had to speak at least pidgin Koine Greek, pardon the expression, just to simply get by, to pay their taxes, to get by as people living under the yoke of, of the Roman Empire. And so they did adopt some... Uh, ways and means of literally material culture of the Greco-Romans. And sadly enough, some odd cultural and pagan Greco-Roman beliefs were creeping into Jewish thought and Jewish belief, which was very unfortunate. And Jesus will be confronting some of this. And he'll be confronting some of this actually in this gospel. But it wasn't, a, it didn't mean that you were going pagan if you took on a something of a Greco-Roman name. Some Jewish folks did have two names, a Jewish name and a Greco-Roman name, and spoke the language. So, for whatever reason, Andrew's parents gave him a Greek name. But we do believe Andrew's following after John the baptizer. He wants to follow after the Messiah, and so does his older brother. So we assume thereby that this is a, if I may express it this way, a good, pious, orthodox God-fearing Jewish family. We are also given more information about Andrew in this gospel than any of the others, if you didn't know that before. And I think there's a reason for that. And the reason for that probably is because he was a very close friend of the Apostle John himself, the author of this gospel. In fact, we uh, know that these two families were fishermen families. That's how they made their living. They lived in the near, near or in the same community. They were in the same business, same trade, and they probably had something of a partnership in the fishing business. And probably John and Andrew, it's more than a distinct possibility that these two men knew each other well nigh, if not their whole lives. They very well may have grown up together. That's probably why we know so much about Andrew in this gospel. He's one of John's best friends, best companions. And in fact, it's long been assumed and believed that the other man with Andrew here standing on the banks of the Jordan with John the baptizer, is John, the author of the gospel, the apostle John himself. And we assume, well, it's been believed for, well, well nigh 2,000 years from early church history and tradition that the apostle John was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, of the 12 original disciples of the Lord Jesus. So the apostle John, the author here, 
Another reason we believe this unnamed man is John because he, if you know ancient literature, ancient history, ancient documents well, he's speaking about these events here in chapter 1, and he will do this again in the gospel. But he speaks about the events here in chapter 1 as if he were an eyewitness. Ancient historians tell us that even here in chapter 1, there are some of those odd, quirky, or interesting little details that the author puts into the text, which give us a sign that these are eyewitness details. John experienced these things as an eyewitness for himself. That's why he includes these details. So we believe this is when Andrew, brother of Simon Peter, John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, first encounters Jesus, who is again identified by John the Baptizer by this magnificent title that we explored last week, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And as we read here, Andrew and John, by the way, I'll remind you of John's, John is a Jewish name, by the way, Yohanan which being translated means Yahweh, the Lord's personal name, the great I am, the name, the memorial name he gave to Moses. Yahweh is gracious. That's what the name Yohanan or John means. It is a beautiful, perfect, and appropriate name for this apostle who will spend the remainder of his life telling the world just how gracious the great I am is. They've been disciples of John the Baptizer, and they're called in the text Disciples. Now, we have heard that word, some of us, half of our lives, most of our lives, all of our lives. But let's go back to the beginning, as it were. What does this word really mean? And what is the concept or the reality of a disciple in Israel, in Roman Palestine, in the first century A.D.? The word in the original Greek is mathetes. It is often translated or can be translated as student or pupil. If I were to literally translate this word mathetes, it means learner. A disciple is fundamentally someone who is first a learner. But don't stop there. There's much more to it. A disciple, a mathetes, in the first century, in particular in Jewish culture, was expected to be a devoted full-time follower of a master teacher. Even if they were an itinerant or peripatetic teacher, that is what Jesus is, itinerant. He is constantly on the move and on the go. And his disciples are expected to follow along with him and live life with him. It is a major uh, commitment for a person and for their family. And they are not just a learner. They are not just to acquire book knowledge as important, as terribly important as that is. And to translate that book learning or book knowledge, pardon the expression, into action in their life. They are also to be developed in their character, in their integrity. They are to emulate their teacher. They are to emulate the character and nature and integrity of their teacher. In short, they are to, be <laughs> they are to become like the teacher. These men will be called to become like Jesus, the Word made flesh. They will be expected to travel with him, to live life with him, to have their hearts and their minds filled with the knowledge that he will give them, and they will be expected to become like him. And so it is with all of us who are called to be followers and called to be disciples of Jesus the Master, the Word made flesh. Again, let me repeat what a major commitment this was. Disciples were expected to very much live life with their master teacher. In fact, they were to help him make his livelihood, to get by, to make his way in the world. And this was to be a lifelong commitment. 
They were to emulate him. They were to become like him. And perhaps in turn, they would become master teachers and have disciples or learners or followers of their own. They were to live life with Jesus. And what's the obvious life application, if I may use that expression bandied about so often these days? That's exactly what we are to do with Jesus, our Lord and our Master, if we are to truly become disciples and followers of Him. It is a complete and total commitment. We are to follow Him wherever He goes, wherever He is active, wherever He is working, whatever He is doing in this world, whatever it takes. We are to soak up all of the knowledge that He gives us and translate it into action in our lives. And yes, that means living life with Him by way of his spirit, by way of his word, by way of his people, by way of his church, by way of his kingdom. And so we should learn from Jesus. By the way, it's something of a compliment to Andrew and John. Now, yes, these men are being led by the spirit. We're not saved because of ourselves. We're saved in spite of ourselves. It is all a work of God. These men are being drawn in, lured in by God the spirit and God the son, all by plan of God the father from ages past. Well, let's give them a little compliment, shall we? From the human point of view. Andrew and John, it's a compliment to them that they saw in John the baptizer a true man of God. They recognized God's message in this man and the power of God's spirit over and in this man. And they followed John the baptizer. I think they may have been wishing to permanently attach themselves to him. Probably with the permission of their fathers elder brothers in the family, they wanted the Messiah that John was preaching. They wanted the Messiah of John the baptizer's message. And they are about to find out, per, up close and personal, as we say, the Messiah who John preaches. Verse 36, and he looked, and he looked upon Jesus. That's a pretty intense statement in the Greek, far more so in the original language in English. He looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The magnificent declaration of, of last week. Now, let me uh, give you from the original language this looked upon. Uh, it sounds almost kind of matter-of-fact or casual in the English. It's not. It's pretty intense in the original Greek. Looked upon, that, that may mean nothing more than, oh, I look over there and there's Charles and Deborah. No, it's, it's, it's more intense than that. The word is emblepo that John uses in the Greek. Emblepo means to observe fixedly, to fix or stare at somebody with intensity, to look at intently. We could translate it as, he looked intensely at Jesus, or he looked intently, fixedly on Jesus, and bellows out this proclamation, this declaration about Jesus again. Look there, Edu, behold, the Lamb of God. There he is, the one I told you of. God's sacrificial Lamb, the ultimate Lamb of atonement by, provided by God. There he is again. It's as if John is saying, there he is, go follow him now. He's here, the one I've been telling you about all these weeks and months. Go after him. There he goes. I've done my job. I can do nothing more for you. Follow the one I've been telling you about all this time. And I'm sure he's bellowing this. John never did anything quietly or by halves. God bless him. Can't wait to meet him. Boy, he would be an intimidating man to meet, wouldn't he? Wonderful man, though. Magnificent man. From the words of Jesus, one of the greatest men that ever lived. Now, you notice this detail? We should take note of something here. The day before, last week's passage, 
John saw Jesus approaching. Today, now here, a day later, in this passage, John seems to be saying, there he goes. He's moving away. He's moving on. So, there he goes. Quick, follow him. Or as the Romans would say, carpe diem, seize the day. Follow after him, boys. Jesus was apparently moving on to where he was staying. He had left his home in Nazareth, although we probably visit there a few more times. But he probably may have not been heading back home to Nazareth at this time, about 20 miles away, we believe. And maybe he was moving on to at least where he would lodge for the night, probably camping out in the open, for all we know, highly likely. And so as we read here, Andrew, probably John, they wisely responded. They followed Jesus. They did not hesitate. They obeyed their old teacher. And they began to follow after this new teacher. That the old teacher is saying these magnificent and puzzling things about. It's a compliment to these men. They obeyed their old teacher. When you have somebody in your life who truly does know God. And they point you to God. Take their advice. And follow after God. That's life application here. Yes, we are most certainly to emulate Andrew and John and their behavior and their enthusiasm and their optimism and their eagerness to obey John and his teaching and to go after the Messiah, seizing the day and seizing the opportunity. Do not hesitate to follow Jesus wherever he is going and whatever he is doing in this world. Much to their credit, they obey. They follow him. Question is, do we? Are we? No excuses. Andrew and John make, well, they're led by the Spirit of God, of course. But they, they do make the wisest and most decisive move of their entire lives. And their eternal destiny will be secured. If you follow after Jesus, the word made flesh, unhesitatingly, as these two men did, you will be making the most wise and the most decisive decision that you will ever make in your life. And yes, it will secure your destiny in this life and in the life to come. Follow the Lamb of God. Precisely as John the baptizer says. God, God the Spirit, enable them to follow Jesus, and He can and will and wants to enable you to follow Jesus. And this is all part of a plan from the prologue in eternity past for these two men and for all who will be called disciples of the Word made flesh. And so, verse 37, And the two disciples heard Him speak, and they followed Jesus. Wonderful. And verse 38, And Jesus... This is very interesting. There's more going on here than what meets the eye, folks. Doing no abuse to the text at all. And Jesus turned and beheld them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? Now, this is very interestingly phrased in the original Greek. You can arguably translate this as several dis different questions or different nuances of the same question translated into English. And I think elements of all of these nuances are in what Jesus asks these men when he turns and greets them or when he turns and confronts them. What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which for you Gentiles being translated means teacher, where are you staying? It's a wonderful verse. It's fascinating. 
wouldn't you say that Jesus knew all along that they were following him? Of course, in his divine omniscience, most certainly he knew. This is all part of the plan. He knew they were following behind him all along. And just at the right moment, the right moment, the perfect moment, of course, he turns. Presumably he stops. He turns to greet them. He turns to confront them. And he watches them catch up to him, as we would say. Isn't that the way it is with all who follow him to an appreciable degree or other? Think about it. By the help of the Spirit, has there been a time when you were running after him, following after him, trailing after him, didn't know if you were going to catch up or not, and all of a sudden he stops and he turns. And he faces you directly and confronts you directly. May not be in the flesh for those of us in this era of history, but folks, in some way or the other, that's how he operates still with all of us who will become his disciples, his followers, with all who wish to approach him. He does that with all of us, doesn't he? in some way or another. Now observe, of all the things that God the Son, the Word made flesh, could have said to these men, of all the grandiose sweeping statements, of all the profound truth statements, and never a desultory word passed through the lips of Jesus of Nazareth, not a one. But his first words in this gospel, first recorded words according to John, and the first thing he says to his first disciples is what? What appears to be a simple little question. Not even a statement, but a question. What do you seek? What do you want? I think perhaps Jesus is saying this. What are you looking for? What do you want? Why are you following me? Is there something I can do for you? And if so, what would that be? What can I do for you? What, what, are you? what are you hoping to find in me by following me? Have you been listening to John? What do you want, really? May I add, do you know who I am? You see, if there, we, we make fun of people in their pride and their arrogance. Do you know who I am? Right? They become an object of scorn to us. But if there was ever a person in history, if there was ever a man in history, the God-man, who had a right to say, do you know who I am? It is Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh. And if you read the Gospels very carefully, he asks that to many people a number of times in various ways. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've really come here for? What I've come to accomplish? What I've come to bring? What are you hoping to find in me? Remember... At this time in the first century A.D., according to Jewish rabbis and even some Greco-Roman teachers, the best teachers at this time were often considered teachers who instructed their students and disciples by asking them the right questions. You didn't just count on your pupils, your disciples, to ask you questions. A good teacher is a good teacher by asking the right questions to the students. Why? To elicit a response to get them to think, to get them to really think, to draw them out, as we say. That's precisely what Jesus is doing here. He does that with Andrew and John. He does it with us. Even in this era in history, by way of his word, by way of his spirit, he wants to draw them out. He wants them to be honest and forthright with him. 
And he does this with all of those who he draws to himself, really. By way of this gospel, he is asking all of us right now today, everybody who is listening, everybody who is watching, he is asking everyone the same as John and Andrew, what are you looking for? What do you want? What are you looking for in me? And by the way, he expected an answer. And he expects an answer now. He expects an honest reply, a genuine response. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, we have something of a historical footnote in the translation there, don't we? It's very interesting. John the Apostle very well knew that he's going to be writing this gospel to many people who are Gentiles, and they're simply not going to know Jewish culture. He has to translate Rabbi for the Gentiles. Rabbi means teacher. Where are you, where, where are you staying? What's up with that? You might think, that's a weird thing to say. Or answering a question with, with, with a question. What, what, what do they mean by this? And by the way, folks, the Son of God is very much in some ways camouflaged or incognito in his human flesh. But I guarantee you, they know already that they are in the presence of somebody the likes of which they have never seen or heard before. And they never will again. Well, well where are you staying? Well, some people, I think, have erroneously interpreted this to mean that now that he's actually turned and he's looking at them and he, he, he uh, greets them with this, this sort of a demand or a question, that, that, that they get a little bit intimidated and they sort of want to uh, sidestep this issue or answer him obliquely or answering safely. Maybe, I don't know. I think this is actually more of an honest and searching answer than what we may think or what we may and they credit Andrew and John with. It is an interesting answer. I don't believe necessarily they are avoiding Jesus. I think they may want to speak to him in private. Thought of that? To have his attention all to themselves. If he really is the Messiah, as John claims, I think they want to get him away from these crowds and find out, is this true? What is he really all about? Is he really the Messiah? They... and. In private, they can really talk to him about what's on their mind, about what's on their heart, what they really do want or expect or hope from him. And so I think they may be wanting to ask, is it really true what John the baptizer says about you? You see, God, Jesus will always genuinely, he will always faithfully, he will always graciously turn and wait. He will. He will always turn and wait if you're following him sincerely. He will always turn and focus on anyone and on everyone who honestly, earnestly seeks after him from right and pure motives. Just as these two men, he will meet with you if you follow after him. If your motives are sincere, he will respond. It's a good answer, really, I think. Where are you staying? Why do I get that impression? Because I read the original language. Where are you staying? The word staying in Greek is meno, and it's, it's a word that suggests permanency. It's a word that we translate elsewhere in the New Testament, not only as staying, but where are you living? Where are you dwelling? Where are you abiding? You see, it suggests permanency. In other words, I think they're saying, we want to stay with you now. We did want to stay with John, but we want to stay with you now if what he said about you is true. We want to abide with you. We want to dwell with you. We want to travel with you. We want to live where you do. We want to live life with you as your disciples. We want to follow you now. We want to be your disciples. 
John told us to do this. John is a true man of God. We know this. The Spirit of God was on John. And he said to follow you. He told us that you were the anointed one. The Messiah himself. And this Lamb of God. Whatever that means, whatever this means, wherever you go, we want to go along. We want to be a part of this. It's an excellent answer to Jesus' question. What's the obvious thing that we should be concerned about here? We should want to do the same. We should say and do exactly the same thing. We want to follow you. We want to live with you. We want to be a part of you. We want to be a part of your mission. You see, that's what we're being confronted with here. You're not just getting events. You are getting events. You are getting factual history. But the Apostle John is saying, and Andrew and I did this. I expect you to do the same. I ex expect you to follow our example. This is written so that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing you may have life in His name. Follow after Him and become His disciple. Verse 39. He said to them, this is interesting. Come and you will see. <laughs> they came therefore and saw where He was staying. And they stayed with Him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. Now, we read here of just how gracious the Lord is, don't we? Of how kind he is, his response. Jesus is very generous. We see how, if I may use this word, how hospitable God the Son is with those he came to seek and save. Very good then, Jesus seems to say. Very good. Good answer. Good answer. Come along then. Or as John the Apostle writes, come and you will see. They're invited to join Jesus. They're invited to stay with him. They're invited to follow him. They're invited to be a part of his life, part of his mission. They're called, invited, accepted at once with no hesitations. To quote Jesus from another passage, seek and you will find. What is the message here? Seek him and he will meet with you. Seek him and he will invite you. Seek him and he will accept you as he did Andrew and John. He will take you in. That's what the word became flesh for. He still invites and he still accepts by way of this passage and by way of these words. He still draws seeking human beings to himself. Now these two, Andrew and John, can you imagine what their emotions must have been like at this time? I think they probably were a little fearful, probably were a little intimidated. But they had to have been just bursting with exuberance or excitement. They must have been overjoyed at this invitation that this man, who is the Messiah... That's going to change the world and life for everybody forever. So they believed. They weren't quite sure correctly how that was going to work out, but it was going to. And he invites them unhesitatingly to come along with him. That's the overjoy emotions. That's the excitement. That's the exuberance. That's the enthusiasm that every single solitary one of us should have when he calls us and when he invites us. They came, therefore saw where he was staying, stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, have you ever wondered about this? Have you ever wondered about that? I know you've read it a million times, and you may, may not have thought about it. They came, therefore, where, and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, what is that there for? What does that mean? It's got to mean something, right? I mean... First of all, what, does this, what in the world does this 10th hour mean, for one thing? And next, well, why in the world does John put the hour of the day in there? 
Well, there's several reasons for that. Um, it could be 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It could be 10 o'clock in the morning. That depends on whose category of time you're keeping, <laughs> Jewish or Roman. And some Jewish people did keep the Jewish hour of the day, but they were forced to observe the Roman hour of the day too. So you could be consulting two watches during the day at this time. Most of the time it was Roman. But if, depending on which, which other category of time, they could have met Jesus at 10 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. If you believe it was 10 o'clock in the morning, John is saying, He let us spend the entire rest of the day and evening and all night with Him that we could ask His questions and get acquainted with Him and find out things about Him. If it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon, John is saying, Well, by the time we got to his campsite or where he was staying, it was a little too late to begin the truck uh, the trip back up to our families up on Sea of Tiberias or Lake Galilee. So we spent all that night with him and into the next day. He was very gracious. He was very kind. It was a time that changed our lives forever. That's what he's saying. But I think he's saying something more important by mention, mentioning the 10th hour of the day. I think it's something pretty personal. The important point is they stayed with Jesus the remainder of the day. They spent all that day and that evening with him, wherever that was. Many believe I agree with them. That the reason why John mentions the specific hour of the day is because he was the other man. He was the other man there with Andrew. He remembers in vivid, exact detail everything. In other words, how could he possibly forget? You know what he's saying here? I remember the exact day. I remember the exact hour, every detail when I met God, the almighty in human flesh and first followed after him. And I first began to find out who and what he really is and what he came to do. I remember the exact hour, the 10th hour when that happened. He remembers the exact hour. His destiny was assured that day. It changed him and his course literally forever. John never forgot the exact hour when the Son of God invited him to come along on his mission. Verse 40. One of those who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew Simon Peter's brother. So, moving through here perhaps a little more quickly. So here John finally mentions the name of one of these men. This is Andrew Simon Peter's brother. Have you wondered about that? Andrew Simon Peter's brother. He makes a point to tell you that this Andrew... His buddy is Simon Peter's brother. Why is that? Well, John is careful to identify Andrew as a brother of Simon Peter because at the time that this gospel was written, Simon in the Gentile world, Jewish world, Christian world, he was known as an important apostle of the Christian faith of Christ. He was known as a very important influential leader in the early church by the time the gospel was written. So John is assuming, you see here again, John is assuming that you, the hearer of the gospel, the reader, the listener, will have already heard of Simon Peter from the Christian movement, from the other Gospels already. Yes, it's if he's saying this, oh, by the way, this Andrew happens to be Simon Peter's brother. Yes, the Simon Peter that you know of, that you heard of, who is very well known to you. You see, this is, you're getting a bit of history here. This is a very common practice in the first century AD, in first century literature, the practice of describing a lesser known person by way of their relationship to a better known person. Verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon. This is significant. What does Andrew do? He goes immediately to find somebody else, starting first with his own family. He found first his own brother, Simon, who likely is the head of the family. So this way, the whole family is going to hear. The whole family is going to be led to Jesus, hopefully. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah. 
Wow, he's attaching that title to Jesus already after only one day. We have found the Messiah, Messiah, the Anointed One, which means Christos, the Anointed One, the Christ, in the Greek. Okay, so what, what's, the, what's the life application here, folks? Emulate Andrew's example. When one encounters the Christ, the Messiah, the Divine Word, go and tell others. Post haste. Go get others. And start where it's obvious. Start with your family. Start with those who are nearest to you. Start with your family, your extended family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, like ripples in a pool. You're expanding influence. Go tell others. Go get others. Go get your family, just exactly as Andrew did. We are not to keep our encounters, our relationships with Christ, a secret. It is not a secret thing. That makes my head explode when I hear people say, oh, my faith is a private thing. No, it is not. It is not. Not if it's genuine faith. The Christian life is always active. It is never a passive thing. Andrew went to get his brother, a family member, the head of the family, the head of the clan. We're not to keep our encounters, our relationship with Christ a secret. Andrew, is, isn't this wonderful? Peter, one of the great apostles, the pillars of the church, one of the leaders and movers and shakers of the early church in the book of Acts. His little brother Andrew, humanly speaking, is the person who is responsible for bringing him to God the Son and changing his life and changing history forever. Get on it, folks. Get your family to Jesus, your friends to Jesus. You have no idea what they may do or may be capable of in serving the kingdom after being brought to Christ. D.A. Carson hit the nail on the head in his commentary. He writes, it's so true. He writes, Andrew thus became the first in a very, very long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony of all is the simple private witness of brother to brother and friend to friend. That is the absolute truth. End quote. Even in this day and age of this wonderful technology by which we're reaching people literally on the far side of the planet right now. All of this knowledge, all of this technology, all of this communication at our fingertips. Nevertheless, it's true, folks, to this very day, the most effective witness for yourself and your church is the simple, personal witness and testimony of you, yourself, to someone else, live in the flesh. Personal witness and testimony. So it was with these men. So 2,000 years later, it is exactly the same still with us. What's the life application here? Who in the world are you bringing to Jesus? Is there anybody? There should be. Well, I've gone through my family. Good. Go to your friends. I've gone through my friends. Good. Go to your neighbors. I've gone through my neighbors. Good. Go to your coworkers. I've gone through all of them too. Well, go to the next neighborhood. Keep going. We have found the Messiah. Magnificent. Andrew is the very first person in this gospel. Now, John implied it. But Andrew is the very first person in this gospel to explicitly call Jesus by that ancient title of hope. Mosiach, God's anointed one who will come into this world and repair the fortunes of God's covenant people and extend salvation to the ends of the earth. He already believes that this is who Jesus is. Now, did spending time with Jesus, after spending time with John the baptizer, did this convince Andrew of Jesus' true identity? Apparently so. 
Spend time with Jesus and the most important truths that you will ever know will be given to you. There's another lesson from this text. If you spend time with Jesus in earnestness and honesty, just as Andrew and John, the most important truths that you will ever be confronted with will be given to you. Andrew at this time probably, no, he probably didn't have a full, completely accurate understanding of who the Messiah really is, divine as well as fully human, what his atoning work really was to be in this world, and there were to be two advents, which would fulfill all the prophecies of the ancient Messiah. I'm sure he didn't have all of that, but he will. In time, he will. If you want to know all the answers, spend time with Jesus, and in time, you will. You will. You will have all the answers if you spend enough time with him. But let's just say this, Andrew is off to a grand start, isn't he? He's off to a grand start. He is on his way. This man is on his way on the best way. Down a road, a path to a fuller, clearer knowledge and experience of God in Christ the Messiah. And again, we would all do well to follow his example. That's why these things have been written. As John says in chapter 20, verse 42. Closing verse for the day. He found, well, for, uh, 41, let me read 41 and take a running leap as I say into 42. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Now it's a distinct possibility that he had to run about 10 to 13 miles back to their home on, on the shores of Lake Galilee. He grabs his older brother. You have got to see this man. I've got the Messiah down there with the baptizer on the Jordan River. And so they haul it back 10 to 13 miles as fast as they can go back to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting phrase to say. It's very intense in the Greek. Not so intense, regrettably, in the English. Jesus looked at him. That is Simon. And he said, oh, you, you are Shimon bar Yohanan. You're Simon, son of John. And likely he had not been given that information by Simon's brother. He just knew exactly who he was. Distinct possibility. And what's even more shocking, he does something which had profound meaning in the first century AD. I can't wait to describe this to you because most people do not know how important this renaming of Simon Peter is. It's much more important, it's much deeper, it's much more profound than what a 21st century English speaking reader would, would imagine at a surface or cursory reading. You are Simon the son of John, you shall be called Sebas, Kephas, which means Peter, the rock. So, Jesus looked at him. In the Greek, this is almost the expression of the intensity that John the baptizer earlier looked at Jesus. In the Greek, this looked at him means Jesus looked hard at Simon. I mean, he regarded him with great intensity. As we would say, he really looked him over. Jesus is really sizing this man up, up and down and inside and out by this look. This is Jesus, the divine word. He knows this man. He knows what he is. He knows what he will become. This meeting of Jesus with Peter is very intense. If, if I may express it this way, Jesus is looking right into this man. He is looking down into the core of this man. He is looking right through this man. And yes, he does exactly the same with all of us.
Are you aware of that yet? Oh, I've experienced that a few times in my life. Not even in the flesh, but I know he is looking right down into my depths and right through me. And that's the look that he'll cast at everyone at some time or another who comes to follow him. And that's how he was casting a look upon Simon Peter that day. Jesus, in his perfect divinity, his omniscience, of course, he knows all there is to know about this man, Simon. He knows his past. He knows his present. He knows his future. Folks, Jesus is arranging Peter's future. Even as we speak, if I may use that expression. He gives Simon something of a new name. Oh, folks, you've got to understand what this really means. I've even heard some uh, uh, preachers and, and folks say, Oh, well, you know, isn't that kind of cute or warm and fuzzy and perhaps a little more meaningful? He gives this, this meaningful nickname to Peter. No, it's not a nickname. He is fundamentally renaming this adult man that he has never seen before. According to Peter, this is a renaming ceremony of an adult male who's probably the head of his own family. I have to take you back to the world and culture of the first century A.D. This renaming is a huge deal to rename an adult. By the way, uh, in the flesh, human beings looking at Peter and Jesus, Jesus is around 30 years of age. Well, it's a distinct possibility that Peter's older than he is. A younger man, even a rabbi, just presuming I have complete and total authority over you to rename you here on the spot. And I'm going to give you a totally new name, which announces what I'm going to do with you, what I'm going to transform you into. I'm going to give you a new name, a new core identity, a new life, all the way about, right here and right now. Do you see what Jesus is asserting? Divine authority. Who names people? Parents. In particular, the father in the first century A.D., Jesus is saying, I am your ultimate father figure right here and right now. I hold that authority over you. I have the right to rename you. He's asserting his divine authority. What else is he doing here? Jesus is acting as a parent. He's acting as a father. He's acting as an ultimate authority figure over Simon by renaming him. This is who Jesus is. This is his power. This is his authority. This is his right. And also Jesus is in his omniscience. Well, he's doing something of prophesying, isn't he? Oh, by the way, this is your future. You're not a rock now. I know it and you know it, but you're going to be. You will become the name that I am giving to you, and I will transform you into the reality of that name. That's what he's saying. Jesus is being the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate king. And prophesying, alluding to this man's future. You see what? You see what's happening here? I hope I'm adequately describing it to you, because sometimes at home studying this, I got so excited about this, I was leaping out of my skin. Folks, he's not giving him a nickname. He's saying he's God. And the power and authority over this man that he has. And telling this man what he's going to do with him. And he has every right to do that. And to anyone whomsoever he chooses. He will transform Simon or Simon into Kephas, Sifas, a rock. The rock of Gibraltar, Petra, Petros, Peter in the Greek, a rock. As Hendrickson says in his commentary, this is not only a prediction, it's a promise. 
Jesus is telling Simon how he will transform him and give him a new identity, a new life. And he's saying the same thing to you right now. He can do exactly the same thing to you as he did to Simon Peter. And yes, he has that right and power authority over all of us to do just that. Jesus here has the power, the authority to totally transform this man. This is one of the most important things about this text. He has the total power and authority to transform any man or woman he chooses. He's the Word made flesh, the Father's agent in creation, the one who is from the beginning, who is with God and who is God. Jesus is telling Peter that he, Jesus, will be Peter's new meaning and purpose in life. That's what he's telling him by renaming him. He, Jesus, will change the very nature, the very character, the very core identity of this man, Simon. That's what's going on here. And so it must be with all of those who will be the Messiah, the divine words, disciples, those whom he calls and those who he redeems. Jesus will make Simon into Kephas, a rock, a pillar in his church. We know the, the rest is history. You see, again, in the ancient world, a person's name was not a mere label. To you Americans in the 21st century, your name is just some sort of identifying label. Oh, no, 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 no. Not in the first century AD, not in this culture. In the ancient world, a person's name was not a mere label. A person's name was considered a profound statement of their defining character. This name change is a huge deal to Peter. A very meaningful event. Jesus as the Son of God, the God of God the Son, the Word made flesh. He has every right to lay such a claim on and over this man. And he has every right to do this with any and all of us. Jesus is saying, Simon, I have come to give you a new life. I have come to give you a new identity at your core altogether. I am going to completely transform you. And it begins here and now. And he's saying the same to all of us who he calls by way of this gospel. Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, Jesus' divine grace can accomplish such transformation in anyone. That's the good news. That's the gospel. These things have been written that Jesus... That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world, the Word made flesh, the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. And so that you may have life, new life, a transformed life at the core of your being in His name. That's the good news from today's passage. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news that Jesus, the Word made flesh, came to save not only Simon, his brother, his friends, his family. He came to save us. And the exact truths for those men 20 centuries ago are true for us now. Help us by the power of your Word and by the power of your Spirit to draw folks here and the world over to follow Jesus. To receive a new name, a new life, a new core identity, a true and total transformation. To be what we were always meant to be. By the power of he who is the word made flesh. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.